Further research when thinking about deplatforming really needs to try and understand the affordances of the platforms that people are going from and the affordances of platforms that people are going to. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're exploring the concept of deplatforming. Really fundamentally, deplatforming is just some kind of stakeholder deciding that content is objectionable and removing it. That's Dr. Joe Whitaker, a lecturer in cyber threats, criminology, sociology, and social policy at Swansea University. Joe's carried out extensive research focusing on online radicalization, including looking into the role deplatforming plays in radicalization online. We'll hear more about Joe's research shortly, but first, a bit more on what deplatforming actually is. Deplatforming is removing content that we find objectionable. So in a lot of instances, there's some pretty low-hanging fruit that pretty much everyone finds objectionable. So we're talking about officially branded terror content, so the kind of work that Tech Against Terrorism does. We're talking about child sexual exploitation. We're talking about things that directly incite violence. That's relatively easy. It's, it's not that difficult to find consensus about removing that kind of content from the internet. However, and the problem starts to arise when you realize that there is a lot of content that is substantially more contentious than that. So it may be things like dog whistle racism, where the language is somewhat coded or misinformation. And we have to have debates about freedom of speech uh, and things like that as well. Those stakeholders might be government and it might be done through laws. So we're seeing, for example, uh, in the UK, we're currently trying to uh, pass the online safety bill. Who knows what will actually end up coming of that? Uh, And that's an example of government regulating this kind of thing. But for the most part, it actually happens with private stakeholders, with tech companies like Facebook, like Twitter, deciding to have their own rules uh, and to to remove content uh, if if it is violative of those rules. I asked Joe to explain how tech company attitudes to content removal have evolved over the years. It's quite interesting to think how far we've come in only a decade. It was only 2013, so 10 years ago, that The general manager of Twitter said that they were the free speech wing of the free speech party, basically outlining their position that they had really no interest in any kind of content removal, be it terrorism, be it hateful speech, be it almost anything. However, quite clearly around that time, we saw the rise of the so-called Islamic State, which was a real game changer when it came to content removal online. We saw for those first few years, 2013, 2014, most of 2015, that the group really had had its own way on on Twitter, particularly, as well as a range of other platforms. They were able to disseminate their content extremely widely. There were tens of thousands of supporters easily found online. There was even instances, very widely publicized instances, of individuals who had traveled to be foreign fighters who were kind of live tweeting their actions back towards the rest of the world. So I think what we can see from that was that there was an immediate reaction, both from governments, from policymakers, uh, as well as kind of public pressure, which then uh, solidifies the pressure from governments who are very very noticing of of public pressure like that. Uh, And then fundamentally, some kind of action needed to be taken. Governments tended to do this with both a carrot and stick approach. So the stick was, you know, threat, fear of kind of regulation, threat of fines. Even in some cases, some governments have spoken about potential criminal liability for executives if this kind of content remains online. 
And then in terms of the carrots, kind of more co-regulation approaches, perhaps the EU Internet Forum is a good example of that in which uh, governments and, and tech companies have worked together to think about how to remove this kind of content. So this was the immediate uh, move that, that brought about the focus on content removal by tech companies. And then eventually we started to see it catch up with a lot of kind of far right content as well. And it was in the kind of last four or five years, really, that a lot of far right content has begun to be removed uh, much more effectively by tech companies. The one thing I would say is that the general underlying assumption, I think, for this kind of content removal when it comes to radicalization is that there is a relationship between viewing this kind of content, engaging with this kind of content and engaging in political violence. Now, I think that that may be on something of shaky grounds, or at least it hasn't been successfully demonstrated yet. As far as I'm concerned, I think it really underlies a huge amount of the logic of why we decide to remove this kind of content from the internet. As we heard from Joe, not all content moderation is black and white. There are many challenges that come with focusing solely on content removal, not least the unclear relationship between viewing harmful content and engaging in political violence. Tech platforms are faced with a delicate balancing act between offering their users a safe experience which doesn't expose them to violent or harmful content, whilst at the same time respecting the rights of users to freedom of speech. Throughout this episode, we'll discuss how tech platforms, particularly smaller platforms with fewer resources, can strike this balance by safeguarding freedom of expression online whilst moderating terrorist and harmful content. We'll also hear some of the benefits of considering strategies outside of deplatforming. Now, there's no doubt that deplatforming has been an effective short-term strategy for tackling terrorist content online. As Joe highlights, there are several examples which demonstrate its power to hamper the reach of terrorist and violent extremist content online, particularly on larger platforms. However, as Joe explains, there are also unintended consequences and a broader strategy is now needed to tackle terrorist and violent extremist content. The first thing to note is, I should be really clear about this, there are some very demonstrable benefits when it comes to deplatforming. And the so-called Islamic State is a really great case study in that. So they were able to go from a place where there were tens of thousands of supporters online, their propaganda being very widely disseminated and having a really strong reach, to being very, very hampered and having their reach really severely diminished as well. That is a really big benefit to it as well. However, there are some potential problems uh, that when it comes to looking at the ecosystem today is that it is substantially more sophisticated. And I think we can make the argument that for terrorist content that remains online, it is substantially more resilient to content takedown now. So although it's reasonable to say that groups like the Islamic State have been hampered online, the people that end up remaining are now much more agile, that they are operating over a whole ecosystem, over dozens of platforms, uh, using decentralized platforms or terrorist-operated websites that are very, very difficult to police. So it may be that despite it all being with good intentions and there being some really clear benefits, that there is a, a negative unintended consequence that we've actually made the journey much more difficult and that we've spurred innovation amongst terrorists and made them think more carefully about the sorts of platforms they're using and how resilient they are. As we've heard, terrorists and violent extremists have been forced to adapt how they operate online to get around content moderation. 
This includes migrating to smaller, lesser-known platforms, which Joe believes could aid someone's radicalization process. If you move away from these big mainstream platforms that pretty much everyone is on, like Facebook, like Instagram, like Twitter, from those platforms to either much smaller platforms or platforms that have things like private chat groups where the pool of people that are discussing this kind of content and engaging with this kind of content is much smaller, it increases the possibility that the echo chamber, that the you know ideological clusters that these people are part of becomes louder. The people that end up moving, that, that migrate from these mainstream platforms to these fringe platforms, end up being the more hardened supporters. The people that therefore remain are more crystallized within the radicalization process, and that may result in an exacerbating effect on radicalization. You could also make the argument that sentiment or just general language might be more extreme uh, as well. So if you move from a platform with content moderation policies to one without, then the filter completely comes off. One thing that's been quite well publicized in recent years is a lot of the extremists that have managed to remain on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, have had to adapt to that by using more coded language, by knowing deliberately where the line is when it comes to their content being removed and trying to stay just on the right side of it. However, if you take that away and move over to a platform like Telegram or Gab or Rocket Chat or anything like that, there is no content moderation policy there, basically. Uh, and it means that there is a lot less filter when it comes to the kinds of things that are allowed to be posted there and therefore incitement to violence, direct support of, of terrorist organizations, directly rec- attempting to recruit for terrorist organizations are much more likely to be around on those kind of platforms. A third point as well is that uh, a potentially backfiring effect of deplatforming is that for many individuals, it may give them some kind of kudos or badge of honor within their community. I think particularly for conspiracy theorists, and there's a huge overlap with that and a lot of terrorist groups, their whole argument is that they are being censored uh, by some kind of cabal or, or you know, globalist uh, conspiracy and censoring them and sending them away to a platform for the people that remain in those kind of communities. It may give them kind of an extra badge of honor. It may make them kind of almost battle hardened in a sense, and it may give their words more weight. Joe's been studying the online behaviours of more than 200 Islamic State terrorists, and he found that the individuals that were using social media were a lot more likely to be caught by law enforcement than those who weren't. One interpretation, and this is supported by other pieces of research as well, is that a lot of these individuals were really recklessly telegraphing their ideology and their activities to law enforcement. And it became a lot easier for law enforcement to uh, pick up their trail and build investigations against them. Therefore, when we start to think about content removal, the kind of question that arises from that is, if we are taking these individuals from open or open-ish platforms like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube and sending them away to platforms like Telegram or Rocket Chat where they have a very high degree of uh, internal security or much higher than they did on those platforms at least. Are we taking away some low-hanging fruit from law enforcement and potentially hampering their ability to conduct robust investigations? And I think that's quite an important point when we that we should factor in as a potential unintended consequence of uh, content removal. 
He says much more research is needed to fully understand the impacts of deplatforming on radicalization. What do we know about the enforced 280 characters of Twitter compared to the completely unlimited characters of forums? How does that affect sentiment? How does that affect uh, language that's get, getting more and more extreme? How does, for example, Facebook's real name policy compare with the almost complete anonymity of Telegram? These are questions that we don't really have very good empirical answers to right now. So I think further research when thinking about deplatforming really needs to try and understand the affordances of the platforms that people are going from and the affordances of platforms that people are going to. Because without that, we can't really say that much about the effects of this kind of migration. As we wait for new research to emerge to better understand online radicalization, is there a case to be made for allowing borderline content to remain on platforms and consider other methods of intervention? I think the thing to say is that it needs not be a really firm binary choice between let's just remove everything compared to the old days of the early internet, the wild, wild west, where nothing got taken down under any circumstances. I think that actually we can try and be a little bit more sophisticated in how we think about content removal, try and be a bit more agile and think about the individual platforms that may be willing to help us in the fight against terrorism online and what kind of affordances they have. It might be, for example, that if there is a company that is willing to take down the absolute worst of the worst content and they are willing to play ball with court orders. We know, you know quite famously, platforms like Telegram or Rocket Chat, they're, they're not going to respond to a subpoena from, from a court to, to release data for the purposes of law enforcement investigations or anything like that. But if, if terrorists were starting to use platforms that do do this and that are willing to, to, to comply with such measures, then there may be some sense in giving them some scope to actually remain on these platforms removing the really, really violent content, but actually allowing a lot of that borderline content to remain online. Now, there are some benefits here. So I already explained uh, one that is um, law enforcement. It may uh, help their ability to conduct investigations and to build cases against individuals. The second is that thinking about the kind of affordances that are available now, it may be possible to, for example, algorithmically downrank certain types of content for example, uh, a lot of companies like YouTube and Facebook are already claiming that they do this with a lot of borderline content. So this might have an effect that if we're concerned about kind of ideological homogeneity, that downranking it uh, may make it appear, uh, kind of tips our hand on the scale and lets us have a little bit of control over just how strong the echo chamber is. And then the third thing is that it may introduce the possibility for some kind of third-party intervention. Now, I'm as sceptical as uh, anyone when it comes to the efficacy of things like counter-narratives, although I think recent research in, in the last year or two has demonstrated with a number of studies that if done correctly, that there may be some kind of promising result from counter-narratives. I, I guess to try and summarise all of that, if we think about leaving some content up under some circumstances, then it may open the door to help law enforcement to algorithmically downrank certain types of content and to introduce third-party interventions as well, which it seems to me may be better than the current situation of a very agile, very extreme ecosystem 
we're, we're kind of fast losing grip of. Across the world, online regulation has been adopted that mandates strict removal deadlines on tech platforms to moderate certain types of illegal or harmful content. I was interested to hear what kind of impact these deadlines have on the responsiveness of tech companies dealing with terrorist content, especially smaller platforms. My inclination is that if you enforce a private enterprise to remove content, particularly and give them a very strict time limit, the only thing that will happen is that there will be over-censorship. If there are extremely harsh penalties, which it's fair to say there are, particularly with the EU regulation, it is extremely likely that the only thing that will suffer is freedom of speech and individuals who should not be having their content removed will still be subject to content removal. So if we don't force tech platforms to comply through legal means, such as imposing penalties, how do we best encourage platforms to cooperate when it comes to removing the very worst terrorist content? Telegram is, is a good example that it, it is very easy to detect, you know, the worst of the worst on Telegram. And if you look at the ways in which Telegram has eventually, after a very long period of time, ended up cooperating with Europol uh, and in their action days, uh, and there has been some relatively successful and actually relatively sustainable effects uh, on jihadism, again, particularly the Islamic State on that platform. So I think the answer is probably more carrot and less stick. If you write laws that have extremely harsh punishments for tech companies, it will lead to over-removal. But if you try and work towards some kind of co-regulatory approach in which tech companies who have the benefit of this, you know, cutting edge, sophisticated technology and stakeholders like law enforcement who can point exactly to where the problem is and, you know, think of innovative workarounds for problems like end-to-end encryption and things like that, that there is scope. So for me, I think it is about uh, stakeholders working together. And I think there's quite a lot of instances in the last few years in which that's actually happened. Now, granted, that is the problem of the last few years. And we are, as I mentioned before, entering a whole new problem uh, now of basically making content moderation not impossible, but very, very difficult. Uh, and the decentralized web poses you know, a huge range of challenges for that. Terrorist-operated websites clearly uh, makes it so much slower if you're having to go through the domain owner uh, and, and things like that. So there seem to be a whole new set of challenges. And I think Perhaps the only way of dealing with it is going to be directly reaching out to to companies, to domain owners and things like that, and trying to win them over and and to try and have them as being active participants rather than dragged, kicking and screaming. I think that the current 2023 ecosystem may have gone past the point of critical mass when it comes to this. There may have been a really good moment where there were a lot of extremists and terrorists on Telegram. We knew where they were. There were a lot of law enforcement and researchers undercover there uh, and, and thinking about it, it was relatively easy to build cases, even with the problem of end-to-end encryption, uh, when it was just that. And having successfully at, at times got them away from that platform, they obviously come back. It's obviously a main part of, of, of a lot of these groups operation, but but disrupting them has spurred innovation amongst them, and we may have made life much more difficult for ourselves. Here at Tech Against Terrorism, we recommend platforms to remove content that is produced by a designated terrorist entity. However, alongside this, we also recommend other methods of content moderation, such as downranking or providing filters and labels that indicate potentially harmful material. 
A huge thank you to Dr. Joe Whittaker for his input in today's episode. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced and edited by Philip Aguiu. Sound design by Oli Guiu. Music by Rowan Bishop.